Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. If you were with us yesterday, you know that Jim Garrity is out for the rest of the week. He's actually at the NRA annual meeting in Texas, and given the events of this week, uh, we expect uh, quite an interesting report from Jim when we're back to our usual fair on Tuesday. Uh, happy, though, to have Andy McCarthy in for today and tomorrow in Jim's place. He's, of course, a former federal prosecutor. He is a Fox News contributor. He's a contributing editor at National Review Online. He is the author of Ball of Collusion, which will come in handy a little bit later in our conversation today. So, uh, Andy, uh, as we always say when you, when you uh, guest host for Jim, uh, at least the Jets are covered while Jim's away. Yeah, they sure are, Greg. In fact, I'm I'm not buying this uh, NRA thing. I think Jim is in New Jersey trying to make the team. In fact, uh, I saw I saw in the New York Post. I guess it was yesterday. They had big stories about um, uh, the Jets having their. Uh, I, I guess they were having practice in New Jersey this week, and how much bigger the, and stronger the quarterback is. And I kept like straining my eyes in these pictures to try to pick Jim out in his uh, in his shoulder pads, but. Um, we'll have to get his number when he gets back. There you go. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, uh, hope always springs eternal uh, for the Jets around this time of year. But uh, Yes, best time of the year. <laughs> yes. But uh, unfortunately, no good martinis today. Uh, yesterday, yeah. of course, we devoted our conversation to the horrific events in Uvalde, Texas. And uh, the news today is not only not better, I think it's considerably worse, uh, especially with this first Uh, discussion we're going to have here. This is the Associated Press. Frustrated onlookers urged police officers to charge into the Texas elementary school where a gunman's rampage killed 19 children and two teachers, witnesses said Wednesday, as investigators worked to track the massacre that lasted upwards of 40 minutes and ended when the 18-year-old shooter was killed by a border patrol team that arrived on the scene. Quote, go in there, go in there. Nearby women shouted at the officers soon after the attack began, said Juan Carranza, 24, who saw the scene from outside his house across the street from Robb Elementary School in the close-knit town of Uvalde. Uh, Carranza said the officers did not go in. And so, Andy, this is uh, frustratingly, maddeningly reminiscent of the Parkland situation where the school resource officer did not engage while knowing that the the shooting was happening. In this situation, uh, we're also uh, finding out that the the shooter crashed his vehicle near the school. Don't know if he intended to go there in the first place or not, but he ran into the school, apparently was accosted by the resource officer outside the school, and then went in the school. The resource officer did not go back in to engage, and then this 40-minute wait. And so in addition to all the obvious anguish right now, even more questions about how that could have possibly happened. Yeah, Greg, this is just a terrible story. And I'm ordinarily hardwired to be sympathetic to the police. And you do have to understand that there is a certain amount of tactical marshalling up that's necessary in any situation like this. There has to be a plan when they go in. Uh, even in an emergency, if they're going to be effective. And there's no doubt that there's a concern on the part of the police, for example, if a gunman is holding children in a classroom, that if they blunder in the wrong way, that they will cause more carnage than they'll prevent. So I, I think we have to bear in mind that they have these concerns. 
That said, you're in a situation where it's obviously emergent. Um, the children are at risk. They need to be protected. That's what the police are there for. And I just think from at least, you know, I'm always one to say when these details first emerge, sometimes things look much different once we've done a full investigation and we learn everybody's motivations and learn everything that happened. So you don't want to jump the gun on on drawing condemnable conclusions. But at the same time, this seems like an awfully long time, an unreasonable amount of time to wait to go in. Andy, as a prosecutor, obviously you work with law enforcement, federal probably, mostly in your time as a, a U.S. attorney. But um, in, in this situation, you mentioned that they need time to marshal up. But uh, what is the appropriate time? This is a fairly small town. I mean, the the police who, who showed up were, were there for a long time. At what point do you just say there are fourth graders getting slaughtered in there? We have to do something. Yeah, pretty quick. It's not, Greg, so much a matter of how big or small the town is it's just what the tactical challenge of the facility is so you know you could be in a very small town but they could be in a very challenging environment as far as the layout of the building is concerned and by contrast they could be in a large city uh, and have a pretty easy way into a facility so it, it's uh, there's no there's no blueprint that works in every situation but i have worked um over the years, especially over my last years as a prosecutor um, with federal and state task forces, both in uh, gangs, drugs, terrorism. And the thing about it is those units train precisely so that you don't have to have a lot of deliberation when an event happens. You know, the idea is that all that all that kind of sorting out what do we do now is supposed to happen uh, on the basis of the training that they've done before the incident takes place. So it is disturbing to find a situation where it looks like they weren't really, at least from what we're hearing now, it looks like they weren't really particularly prepared uh, and they didn't have a, a good plan going in of, of what to do. Uh, and you know, obviously, as you point out, you have children being mowed down, um, standing outside talking about it at a certain point doesn't make any sense. You have to go in and take action. And I'm, again, fully appreciative of the idea that they were concerned not to make matters worse. But at a certain point, when you know the shooting is underway, you can't worry about that anymore. You have to go in and take action. And if they didn't have a plan ready to go, I mean, sadly, we've had enough of these where you would think. And, and as, a, as you said, a lot of these uh, law enforcement agencies have done training in these situations. So there should be a plan. It, you might need to tweak it a bit depending on where you think the, the situation is happening in the building. But just the idea that you wouldn't have a plan is, is maddening as well. Yeah, but, you know, Greg, us sitting here taking this in, I mean, I'm in Chicago today. I'm usually in New Jersey, New York area. Um, it may seem to us reading the coverage that, my God, these things happen all the time. Um, but they really don't happen all the time. And we have like a million little towns in America. Uh, and you never think it's going to be your town. You know, in Uvalde, Texas, they, they didn't think because there was something at Parkland in, in Florida that it was going to happen to them, you know. So I, I think you have to 
separate out what our perception as consumers of this news is versus how much any one particular community in America feels like they're vulnerable to this. And I, I you know, I heard um, I, I was on doing doing a Fox hit uh, this morning and Carl Rove was uh, on before I was speaking about the shooting. And he said something that hadn't really um, dawned on me in a long time, but it's absolutely true. And, and that is that the culture in a place like Uvalde is very different from, you know, New York City or Chicago or, or San Francisco. And I had this experience myself when I ran a satellite U.S. attorney's office. I had been a prosecutor in the Manhattan U.S. attorney's office for a number of years. And the last five years, I ran the satellite U.S. attorney's office in upstate New York. And it was like day and night in terms of what the culture was with respect to guns. Uh, and there was not this, you know, this anxiety about guns. There was not hostility to guns. And there wasn't this perception of a threat because there were a lot of guns or because there were because there was easy availability at getting uh, guns and ammunition. So it's you know, we have to we have to be modest in our ability to assess what the cultural conditions are in a place and what it is that, you know, what signs they see that uh, may tell them that they are or they aren't in danger. Hopefully everyone around the country now knows that it can happen there. If it can happen in a small town like that, it can happen absolutely anywhere. So just just heartbreaking on even more levels as a result of that news. Um, Hard to transition to an ad after that, but uh, we are grateful for our sponsors. And uh, one of our most loyal ones is the X chair. Many of us spend more time every day in our office chair than in our cars or even in our beds. That's why it's so important to invest in the right chair to spend those hours with the right level of support and comfort to get the most productivity out of your day. Now, Jim's not here, but his voice is to tell us about how much he loves his X chair. X chair has made my time at my desk not only more productive, it's honestly my favorite place to sit for any reason. Not only does X-Chair's patented Dynamic Variable Lumbar, or DVL, offer the ultimate customized support, but my X-Chair can give me a massage or heat up or cool down. And now, thanks to the X-Chair's new FS360 armrests, I can adjust my armrests to the perfect position. All of these unique X-Chair features help the hours at my desk fly by in complete comfort. That's why I love my X chair. So go to xchairmartini.com now. That's the letter X, chair, M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com. Or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 per month. xchairmartini.com. Well, Andy, as unfortunately has become the norm with these sorts of horrific events, the politics don't wait at all anymore. Uh, as soon as the news comes out, all of the uh, allegedly hot takes on social media begin, the, the talking heads on cable news and so forth coming up uh, with their um, gun control talking points and so forth, and on and on and on. But it usually doesn't show up in the actual press conference involving uh, political leaders and law enforcement officials and that's what happened yesterday, as many of you know, uh, when Governor Abbott was in Uvalde along with uh, Senator Cruz and Lieutenant Governor Patrick. And uh, Governor Abbott had just finished uh, speaking and was passing the microphone to the lieutenant governor 
when Beta O'Rourke waltzes into this building and uh, Patrick tries to cut him off, Cruz tries to cut him off, but it's the Uvalde mayor whose uh, response is probably the one uh, we're going to remember. Here's how that unfolded. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Sit down. You're out, you're out of line and an embarrassment. Sit down and don't play this shooting is right now, and you're doing nothing. No, you're please to get his ass out of here. This, this, is not this is totally predictable when you Sir, you're out of line. Sir, you are out of line. Sir, you are out of line. Please leave this auditorium. So in an exit, in an exit. I can't believe you're a sick son of a bitch that would come to a deal like this to make a political issue. So, Andy, of course, uh, Beta was lauded on the left-leaning cable channels for that. Had the party situation been different, of course, he would have been villainized for it. Um, you know, Jim and I don't genuinely think that highly, of course, of Beto O'Rourke. But we did notice uh, that as he tried to become Texas governor, and he is the Democratic nominee, of course, that he said, unlike his uh, 2020 presidential campaign, where he did want to take our AR-15s and the AK-47s, uh, that he wasn't going after the guns, and apparently he's changed his mind yet again based on the circumstances. So uh, what do you make of uh, people like him injecting themselves uh, into situations like this? Greg, I'm just so glad that Donald Trump is gone so that we're back to having norms in our <laughs> politics that uh, everybody um, <laughs> respects and uh, abides by. I mean, I, I just it, it's mind boggling to me that in the that he would think it was a good idea uh, to make what is obviously nakedly a political gesture, political statement in the middle of people trying to deal officials trying to deal with an atrocity. Uh, under circumstances where you have a community that's uh, that's feeling very vulnerable uh, and th they're waiting for their government not only to to take action, but to report to them uh, on what happened uh, and what's being done to make sure that it doesn't happen again. You know, we're supposed to have a situation where, like, our politics takes place in one sphere and the day to day governance takes place. Uh, in another where the politics minimally at most uh, interferes with it. And for him to pull this kind of a stunt, I I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to address what political desperation it smacks of, because, the, again, the politics really ought to have nothing to do with this. And in a sense, you know, everything's always uh, got political overtones to it. That's why the roster... Uh, of officials that you listed uh, were obviously, uh, you know, present and accounted for, but they weren't doing politics. They were doing governance. And what Beto O'Rourke was doing was, on the one hand, interfering with the governance uh, under the worst of circumstances in terms of what his his judgment is. Uh, and I think also uh, exhibiting that he's not the kind of person you want to put in that kind of a position. If he thought that that was an appropriate place and time to pull the kind of stunt that he pulled, then I think he's got no business in government. Yeah, that's, uh, that's well said. Uh, during your time as a prosecutor, I assume you dealt with people who were focused on governance and others who were focused on politics. How much harder did that make your job when they weren't focused on the governance? Well, you know, uh, to go back to, 
to Trump again. I mean, I'm I'm kidding when I say that uh, his leaving means that we're back to having norms, because I think, you know, it's been obvious all along that the left are the ones that are uh, completely undermining our norms. Trump stands out because he's the rare figure uh, who's pegged on the political right, who, in, who engages in that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, in, in almost every particular, uh, you're seeing progressives knock down uh, the norms of this government and society. And that's, you know, a big part of what their objective is. You can't radically transform the society while maintaining its norms, right? So um, as far as, you know, the politics interfering with the governance, there's nothing worse for prosecutors, and I would ex extend this to police as well, um, for the, you know, for the political preening to take place in the middle of when you're trying to do an investigation uh, and engage in a search for the for the truth. And I don't mean to sound uh, portentous here, but what an investigation is supposed to be about is finding out what happened. And the interesting thing to me in that score with respect to the left is that, you know, the new theme from that side of the aisle seems to be that, you know, there was a time when at least we could all agree on a set of facts and we could argue wh about what the facts meant, but uh, at least uh, there was a commitment to trying to agree on what reality was. And then you could make whatever political arguments about reality that you wanted to. Well, this is what an investigation is in a high strung situation where you've had just an unspeakable atrocity uh, and where you have every political loudmouth on the spectrum weighing in on what it all means, you need to have investigators who can go in and figure out what the hell happened. And that really ought to be our, our premise from which we argue from a policy perspective, what do you do about it? And to interfere with that exercise means that you're so carried away with your own political agenda that the reality of what happened, the facts, don't mean anything to you. And I just think the people who take that position are simply in a situation where everybody ought to be trying to you know, pull together and uh, help here, try to figure out what happened and what we ought to do about it. Those people who are carried away with their political agendas are not helping. Andy, I got to throw one more thing at you here. Uh, and this is Biden from the night after the shooting. Here's what he talked about in terms of uh, uh, the weapons. The idea that an 18-year-old kid can walk into a gun store and buy two assault weapons is just wrong. What in God's name do you need an assault weapon for except to kill someone? Deer aren't running through the forest with Kevlar vests on, for God's sake. It's just sick. Andy, what kind of look would you have gotten from the founders if you tried to contend that the Second Amendment was about deer hunting? <laughs> um, probably the same kind of look you'd have gotten from Justice Scalia if you uh, <laughs> gave that explanation to him in the, uh, in the Supreme Court case uh, where he you know, famously issued the uh, Second Amendment uh, opinion. Um, Biden, th this is not really surprising because this is one of the things that Biden's been wrong about for 40 years. You know, so it would be it'd be difficult to quantify the number of times. I, actually, 
he sounded more, even though what he was saying was gibberish, um, he sounded more coherent and compelling uh, saying that than he says than he sounds when he says most things because he's repeated it so many times over the last half century. It's the same nonsense he says every single time something like this comes up. I mean, I don't know for the life of me, Greg, what an assault weapon is. I mean, the purpose of a gun is to assault. So I don't, you know, to call it an assault weapon. Uh, I mean, I suppose a baseball bat is an assault weapon too, but what does that mean? I, I don't yeah, even the cosmetic don't features, even right? get it. And then obviously, you know, the, the, the hunting portion of the second amendment will be, as you point out, news to, uh, uh, to a lot of people. Um, it, it, look, it, it's just, it's the same nonsense he's been saying for half a century. And, uh, it's about as helpful in this iteration of it as it's been in any other. All right. Well, uh, let's talk about another one of our great sponsors while we have the opportunity. The three martini lunch today brought to you in part by net choice. As Americans, innovation has always been what makes us different, and America's tech industry outpaces the world. We have the most innovative companies that power our economy and our way of life. And the reason? Free market innovation is what makes us number one. But some in Washington want to put big government in charge of America's top innovators attacking our own in the name of competition, while our true competitors, like those in Europe and China, close the gap. NetChoice believes congressional conservatives must stand for American innovation, not big government, by rejecting progressive antitrust proposals. They encourage you to tell your senator to oppose Senator Amy Klobuchar's Senate Resolution 2992. Learn more about this fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org slash 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, Andy, on to our final martini now and a case you have obviously been following in a number of manifestations for years. I referenced your Ball of Collusion book and going back to the whole Mueller investigation and the allegations of Russian collusion in the Trump campaign 2016. Uh, that uh, appears to have been blown up well. And if you want to understand that better, read Ball of Collusion. But uh, the most high-profile prosecution to date is uh, John Durham's prosecution of Michael Sussman. The prosecution has wrapped up its case, and now we're finding out today that Sussman won't testify, so the defense is pretty much done, and we're uh, likely headed to summation soon. And so uh, the question is, is, what did we learn in this case? What kind of verdict are we likely to get, and what comes next? Well, Greg, usually the calculation a defendant makes when he elects not to testify is that the case has gone about as well for him as it can go. Um, you know, there are some situations where uh, maybe the defendant should testify under the circumstances, but there's a, a significant enough chance that if he gets destroyed on cross-examination, it'll hurt the case uh, and hurt his chances of acquittal. Uh, and that keeps the defendant off. But I think most of the time, and this time is no exception, uh, the defendant decides not to testify because they think they have a winner here on the defense side. And they've got good reasons to think that which is an odd or ironic thing to say, given that this is a false statements case and the evidence that he made a false statement is overwhelming. That is the charges that he uh, misrepresented or stated, I should say, that he was not representing any client when he peddled to the FBI anti-Trump information that indicated that Trump and uh, Vladimir Putin had established this back channel communications system through servers at a Russian financial institution known as uh, Alpha Bank. 
in fact, uh, he was bringing that information on behalf of two of his clients, the Clinton campaign. And mind you, this was in September of 2016, about six weeks before Election Day. Uh, and this tech executive named Rodney Jaffe, who was a pro-Clinton person who was hoping to get a cybersecurity job in the Clinton campaign and who compiled this bogus information uh, about a supposed Trump-Russia connection. So given that it was, it's pretty clear that he made a false statement, you would wonder, you know, why do you think the case is going well for him? But the thing is, you have to show in a false statements case that the false statement was material. That is to say that it made a difference in how the FBI assessed it. And what I would say about that is that um, the fact that he said something that wasn't true to the FBI does not mean that the FBI was fooled by it. And the weakness of Durham's case has always been here that he portrays the FBI as if they were an innocent dupe in all of this, when there, in fact, is abundant evidence that they were fully aware of the fact that they were taking partisan political information from somebody who was a high-level Democratic operative. And there's a lot of evidence now in the record that they treated it exactly that way um, in the sense of concealing Sussman's identity even in the FBI's own paperwork, because they didn't want to look bad for having knowingly taken uh, highly political information that turned out to be complete nonsense. So because the FBI is part of the problem here, Sussman could walk? Well, unfortunately, Greg, if the, if the charge in federal law was making a false statement, then Durham would probably be in fine shape. Unfortunately, the charge is making a false statement to the FBI, and as a result, it matters, you know, how did the FBI assess it and were they really fooled by it? And there's a lot of evidence that they weren't fooled. And I think that, you know, the the uh, key pieces in the in the document in which they opened the investigation, they say that the information that was brought to them by Sussman actually came from the United States Department of Justice, which isn't isn't just wrong. It's a false statement. So you're not in, a, in good shape starting off a false statement case when the FBI itself has made a false statement in its documentation of the investigation. Uh, and that's the hand that Durham's dealt. Now, I, I'd say this. He didn't have to bring this case. And if he loses this case, I think that's going to be a momentous event, not merely for Sussman, but in its ramifications for his overall investigation, because I think the media, uh, if Sussman is acquitted, is going to jump on this as basically a general assessment that Durham has wasted uh, everybody's time for three years and that there's really nothing to see with respect to his investigation. So I think it was very curious that he chose uh, to charge this case, which was always going to be a very difficult case for him, but we'll see what happens. That is incredible. Uh, we have been t very tough on the FBI on this podcast, and that one makes me even more sick. Real quick, uh, speaking of the FBI, before we go, uh, there's news that an FBI agent who was a lead investigator on the now debunked collusion accusations is under FBI review for potentially withholding exculpatory evidence from the FISA court. Uh, this guy's name is Curtis Hyde, H-E-I-D-E, I think is how you say it, worked in the FBI's 
Chicago field office in 2016 when the agency investigated uh, the debunked claims and it specifically related to Trump campaign aide uh, George Papadopoulos. So is this the FBI actually doing the right thing? Are they trying to look like they're doing the right thing? How do you read this one? I think the unfortunate thing for America, Greg, is that um, Hyde's main defense is, why are they singling me out? Everybody was withholding evidence from the FISA court. Um, and it's a, it's a sad state of affairs. I hope, look, yes, I think the FBI has largely done the right thing in the sense that um, everybody who was involved in what is now notoriously known as Crossfire Hurricane, which was the Trump-Russia investigation, they're all gone. They've all either been fired or um, encouraged to spend more time with their families. <laughs> Um, but they're no longer there and they're no longer in positions of, uh, you know, of being able to affect investigations. Now, it's not satisfying to people who want them, you know, frog marched uh, across Washington in handcuffs. But that was never going to happen. I think the best that you can hope for uh, on uh, this side of the grave is that uh, you take people who have abused their authority and you take the authority away from them. If you're hoping for more than that, I think you're going to be disappointed. Yeah. And getting the truth out there helps. I had mentioned this to Jim earlier in the week when we had the uh, Robbie Mook testimony about Hillary Clinton uh, approving sending the stories to the media without having them verified. It's amazing how much interest the media doesn't have when the, when the news is in that direction. But uh, yeah, well, if, if Sussman gets acquitted, they'll get interested real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable, but actually entirely predictable. Andy, <laughs> thanks for your time today. We'll do it again tomorrow. See you then. Thanks so much, Greg. Andrew C. McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, contributing editor at National Review Online, and he is a Fox News contributor as well. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Um, as I said, Andy will be here tomorrow. In the meantime, please subscribe to the podcast. If you don't already, tell a friend about us as well. Thank you so much for your five-star ratings, your kind reviews. We really appreciate those. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. Andy is at Andrew C. McCarthy. Jim, of course, is at Jim Garrity. And I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday and join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Professor Gadsad joins me for the entire podcast to discuss how the left is constantly trying to manipulate our minds to no longer recognize reality. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter show, Professor Sad explains how the left brainwashes people to embrace sheer nonsense like men being able to have babies. He also explains how to develop the mindset to fight back and to equip our children to do the same. Join us. Follow The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.